I'll tell you two things about Nathan that may surprise you to hear on this occasion. Firstly, Nathan was a sinner. Secondly, Nathan was certain of his salvation. As one of Nathan's grandfathers, and on behalf of his family, may I express our thanks to some people. Firstly, to the medical fraternity, the staff of John Hunter Hospital where Nathan died, the ambulance officers who frequently attended him over the several emergencies he had, and especially the staff of Sydney's Children's Hospital who cared for him so brilliantly, trying everything possible to save his life and to ease his pains. Secondly, can I say thank you to the members of the church at Janali, whose loving affection throughout and their thoughtful actions, continued prayerfulness could not have been surpassed. And thirdly, to the staff, the principal and the students of this school in their support and their love, their care and their devotion, not just to Nathan, but also to his siblings and to the whole family, as we've heard from so many people speaking today. And frankly, there's one thing I've missed out today that I wanted to do on every occasion, and so I'm asking you to share with me in doing it, because I suspect you want to do it too. We want to say thank you to all these people. However, right here now, we're not to thank each other, we're here to thank God. To thank him for the life that he gave, his name is Nathan, and is now taken from us. To thank God for the life of Nathan. In many ways, Nathan was just one of us, born, living, eating, drinking, laughing, crying, just as we all are. There was nothing particularly unique about Nathan. You know, no Olympic medal, he didn't write a famous novel or a great opera. He didn't have a PhD at 15, and he didn't have a singing voice that would crack crystal. There was nothing that would make him a celebrity, thankfully. <laughs> or to stand out and be remembered by everybody other than his very unusual cancer and his early death that brings so many of us together. And yet, if you'll pardon a grandfather for saying so, his character, while not unique, was very impressive, as I think we've heard today. Nathan wasn't perfect. He knew that, and he wanted me to tell you that. He sinned, and he sinned often. I saw it. <laughs> but facing death, as he has for the last year, he had a consistent confidence in God that was disarming to people. He didn't become self-absorbed. He continued to care for others. And he stood out as different, as calm before the storm, as thoughtful when others were panicking, as kind when life seems so cruel. He knew he was going to face his maker 
as a sinner who needed salvation. And he wrestled with this. He searched the scriptures to develop a great certainty about his eternity. For Nathan's certainty of entering heaven wasn't just a wishful thinking for a better life, a fantasy, a pipe dream. He had no time for pious platitudes. He was far too cynical and sceptical to believe anything or everything that people told him. He was a very critical thinker. And over the year, he developed a deeply reasoned understanding of God and his purposes. And he wanted me to explain it to you today. Others here today will talk of Nathan. My task is different. It's to talk of God. But in talking of God, we will come to understand Nathan better. So let's turn our attention away from Nathan and to this Bible passage that Norman just read for us a few moments ago in Romans 8. For it's the passage that Nathan chose for us today. He found it so helpful. And he, as he wrestled in conscience, preparing for his death. And as he suffered in pain, preparing for his glory. It's the passage that will explain Nathan to us as it explains the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To simplify it on such a hot day with such a crowd, I've got three headings. Suffering, sovereignty and certainty. And if you can't spell, they all start with S. <laughs> Our dear friend John Chapman would have loved that. But I better warn you at the beginning that as we go through the three, the longest is the last. Firstly, suffering. While our society tries to avoid thinking about suffering and pretend that all is well in our wonderful world, the Bible is much more realistic, confronting and reminding and explaining for us the sufferings of this world. Suffering that is so acute that at times we don't know what to pray for. We're in such weakness, such pain, sorrow and anguish that all we can do is groan and sigh and, of course, cry. You see it there in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Last year's been like that, as we prayed for healing in the face of conflicting and yet increasingly sad news of the spread of tumours. It can be like it today, as we give joyful thanks to God for Nathan and yet internally our hearts are breaking with sorrow, as we grieve for what we have lost and can't retrieve. Yet notice in that verse, we're not left alone in prayerless mumbling 
For the Spirit of God turns our tears and sighs, our groans and our heartaches into prayers that he takes to our Father in heaven. Which brings me to the second topic of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. For as we come in prayer, we're reminded that we know about our sovereign God. You see it in verse 28, as we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God rules as the sovereign, as the king, as, as, as the ruler. That's what the word sovereign means, over all things. So that all things work together for God's good purpose in the lives of his children. There's nothing outside of his control or outside of his care. Nothing happened to Nathan this last year which was outside of God's control or outside of his concern. Neither Nathan nor God lost the battle against cancer. It was all part and parcel of God's good purpose for Nathan. At first when you hear that, it sounds extraordinary. But God is God. He is sovereign. He doesn't lose control. And he has good purpose for his children, a purpose that is explained to us in the next verse, number 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God's good purpose for his children? What is the good life for which we're destined to live. It's not the pain-free life in this world. Now, the Bible is quite clear about that, that in this world, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upwards. This last year's suffering has been awful. This last week's death, dreadful. But God's plan for his children is to be conformed to the likeness of his glorious son. That doesn't mean pain-free life in this world, just the reverse. It means becoming like Jesus. And if you remember Jesus, he is called the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the crucified Christ the man who bore all our sorrows and our griefs, the man who laid down his life for others. So that in God's good time, we may become like his son in glory, sharing in his glory and bringing him glory by being like him. We see in verse 30 how God's sovereignty works out in our lives. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage is so confident of God's sovereignty in our salvation that it speaks of being glorified as if it's a done deal already. Those whom he justified, 
he also glorified. Which brings me to the third, to certainty. We know of the sufferings of this world. We know of the sovereignty of God over this world, using everything, including our suffering, to bring us to the glory that we will share with Christ. We therefore know of the certainty of our glorious future. They say there are only two certainties about our future, death and taxes. And quite clearly, if you're rich enough, you can avoid taxes. So the only certainty left is death. And death is so unpleasant, so unknown till you come to it, that most people not only fight against it, but go into denial about it, pretending, imagining that because it hasn't happened to me and only happened to other people, that it will never happen to me pretending that somehow I'm going to avoid it, pretending somehow it's way off in the future and nothing about now, pretending, pretending, or worse still, pretending that it doesn't matter at all that we die. How can you say that a 16-year-old boy's death doesn't matter? But once you know the sovereignty of God, working in all things for our glorification, then you have a certainty about the future, including death. That's what our passage is about with its mounting tide of rhetorical questions in verses 31 to 36. And then its magnificent affirmation of victory in verses 37 to 39. It's about our certainty. See, the simple response to God's sovereignty to God's sovereign plan for our glorification is the rhetorical challenge of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All the rest of the passage flows from that central challenge that though there are many things against us, none of them can stand against us if God is for us. Do you think God is stingy that he's going to back out on his promises and not give us glory? Think again. Verse 32, he didn't spare his own son in order to save us. What then is it that he will hold back from us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you think that somebody will be able to point the finger at us, point out our sins, declaring us unfit for glory? Think again. Verse 32, verse 33. It's God himself, the judge of all the world, who justifies us by sending his son to die for us. If God is for us, who's going to be against us? Do you think that somebody will be able to condemn us? Think again, verse 34. Christ Jesus died for us. Christ Jesus has been raised to heaven. Christ Jesus is right now interceding for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you think that somebody or something could come between us and God's love for us or Christ's love for us? 
Think again, verse 35. He loved us so much that he gave his son for us. His son so loved us that he died for us. Suffering will never keep us from the love of God. In whatever form it comes, tribulation, distress, persecution, famineness, nakedness, danger, sword, cancer. Indeed, the Old Testament in verse 36 predicts our suffering as being completely normal in this world. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And so our certainty rises to this magnificent affirmation of victory. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once you've grasped the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, once you've understood the sovereignty of God controlling all of our life, including our suffering, including our pain, including our cancer, once you've understood that this sovereign Lord loves us so much, that he willingly laid down his life for us, paying for all our sin, enduring all our hell. Once you have been grasped by this love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then you can look death in the face with all its horror and all its anguish and know if God is for us, then who can be against us? Neither death nor life. Angels or rulers, the present or the future, powers or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Did you hear what was said? He was worried about us and our grieving. <laughs> when he was dying. That is looking God, that is looking face in the death, looking death in the face in the knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nathan knew this love of God. And as soon as he understood the gospel as a young boy, he wanted his friends and his family to tell others about it. Told his mother to ring up some people, make sure they knew about it. Nathan built his all too short life on the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so when suffering came to him, came in a way that nobody would have predicted, came with a terrible terminus in death, when his suffering came, he didn't change his direction. He didn't give up caring for Jesus. He didn't give up caring for others. While he hurt, and even the medicines that were given to him hurt, he still remained steadfast and confident in his suffering, knowing 
the sovereignty of God was at work in all of this. But he did. He did take stock of his life. Because Nathan, he knew he was a sinner. And amongst the things, the wonderful things that have been said of him today, he would be slightly cranky that we didn't say the thing he knew most. He was a sinner. And so he searched the scriptures. He searched again to base his salvation in the certainty of God's word. And when he saw this passage in particular, he knew how his confidence was founded not on himself but on the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Which is why today we don't so much honour Nathan but we give thanks to God for him, brothers and sisters. We don't, today, it's why we, we're not worried about Nathan's future but we give thanks to God for his salvation. It's why today we can rejoice in our sorrow. And praise God in Nathan's death. But Nathan would be very, very disappointed in me. In fact, to tell you the truth, he would not so gently chide me. If I didn't ask you whether you have this same certainty whether you know God who loves you so much, whether you are hearing in the death of his servant Nathan, hearing the call to come to God or hearing the call to come back to God. Young man, young woman, do you hear in the death of Nathan, the call of God. Listen and come to him. Parents, do you hear in the death of one so young that it scares you of your own children? Do you hear the call of God? Listen to the call and come to him. Old man, old woman, do you hear the call of God? Your time is short. Listen and come back to him. For rest assured, one day, you too, with Nathan, will die. One day, you too will meet your maker. And as a sinner like Nathan, and I hope you know it of yourselves as well as he knew it of himself, what will you say on that day? What will be your response when you meet your maker? What will you say in your defence? 
Who will stand and intercede for you? I know Nathan's response. Jesus Christ died for me. I know who intercedes for Nathan. Jesus Christ who died for him and rose again to sit at God's right hand. That's why with this awful mixture that I have in my heart and I know you have too, of sorrowful joy. We must think of God, not Nathan. For we are to give thanks to God and sing his praises. For nothing will separate Nathan from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, his Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are indeed the sovereign Lord of all, that you indeed have given us Nathan and you indeed have taken your Nathan. We thank you for him, Father, and for the years you gave us of this man. But we thank you most of all, Father, that you gave him your Holy Spirit, that he would turn to you and put his trust in you and live for you as he served us, so many of us, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by word and by action. We thank you for this great work that you've done in his life. And as we think of that, Father, we pray for that great work to be done in our lives too, in the lives of every one of us who are confronted by this such untimely death, that in his death, like Samson of old, he may see even greater victory for you than even in his lifetime. That many people, knowing of Nathan and his testimony to you, may come to know you as he did, as his loving father. And we pray this in the name of his Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.